0: Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College, Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 3.4, why obedience? Well, g'day. I hope you've been feeling a little restless since listening to the last podcast. What I mean by that is I hope that the question that I asked at the end of that podcast has had you thinking and wondering a bit, what is the purpose of obedience? I wonder what you came up with. What's the purpose of obedience? Is it it to be good? Is it to become a better person? Is it to honor God? What's the end goal in sight when we commit ourselves, either generally or specifically, to be obedient? I'm asking this question because Christians tend to emphasize obedience a lot, right? And rightly so. But I'm not sure that we often pause enough to ask this question. What's the purpose of my obedience? But I'm also raising this question because we've been looking at the concept of covenant in the Old Testament, and a large part of Israel's relationship with God had to do with covenant obligations to obey Yahweh within that relationship. So for us to understand what's going on in the, in the Old Testament and in our own lives, I think we need to take some time uh, as we finish this section on covenant just to ask why? <laughs> why obedience? And I'll admit to borrowing some material from chapter three of my book, Sharing God's Passion. So let me be frank. My name's Paul, but let me be frank. That's a terrible joke. My concern here is that Israel's problem with the law is the same problem that contemporary Christians have with obedience, okay? My concern is that Israel's problem with the law is the same problem that Christians today have with obedience. And that problem is moralism. Do you know what I mean by moralism? Knowing and saying what's right and wrong with everything and making judgments about everyone but yourself, right? So you know what's right, you know what's wrong, it's all black and white, and you call it for other people. I mentioned previously that um, through the giving of the law, Israel was handed an invitation, an invitation to be the light of the world, but that rather than obey the law for the sake of the world, Israel framed that invitation, right? They put it up on display, up on the wall, and never went to the party. Israel took great pride, or even arrogance, in their election as God's people. But the Old Testament tells the tragic story of Israel missing the point, missing the party. And although I hate to say it, Christians today can sometimes fall into that same trap. We have to be so careful that the church doesn't become a bunch of do-gooders who've forgotten why we're being good. So when being good, that is trying to resist our human propensity to mess things up, when being good or trying not to sin becomes your life's goal, right? So that week after week, you listen to sermon after sermon in the hope that little by little, you might become a better Christian. When we do that, we're missing the point. We've shortchanged ourselves for a limited vision of life's purpose because the goal of Christian ethics is not simply to be good so that we're less plagued by guilt on our journey through life. The problem with that kind of tunnel vision is we become obsessed with our own personal war against sin. I don't know, you may know what I mean by that. When you fix your eyes on something that you just want to get right, it becomes the only thing that you can see. And that struggle then becomes your way of measuring success or failure. And subtly, Jesus gets sidelined. He's not even in the picture anymore. And he should be at the center. So moralism is not the heart of Christian living. It's actually just another idol when it takes that uh, top priority in our lives. It's another way for us to feel in control of our own destiny and our own salvation. In other words, it's, it's yet another way that we mess things up. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to strive to do what God asks of us, okay? Obedience to God is important, and I think I've already stressed that. But it's not the heart and soul of things in and of itself. If we simply obey because we're supposed to obey, to be honest, we just come across as brainwashed legalists. Or worse, we make God look like a tyrant Because Christians seem to be people who just have to do things right all the time. They're not really sure why, but they better not get it wrong. So I ask again, why should we obey God's words? Why do we obey God's words? To answer this, let's turn to Genesis. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We've been in Genesis long enough. All right, let's turn to a text you may have never read before. Jeremiah chapter 13. There's a great little story here about Jeremiah that helps us to get a sense of what the law was for in Israel's life with God and what obedience is for in our life with God. I'm going to read you Jeremiah 13 verses 1 to 11. And as I said, I'm reading from the NRSV. Thus said the Lord to me, Go and buy yourself a linen loincloth and put it on your loins, but don't dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, Take the loincloth that you bought and are wearing and go now to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Go now to the Euphrates, take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. So I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I'd hidden it. But now the loincloth was ruined. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, just so, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own will, and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to one's loins, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, in order that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise and a glory. But they wouldn't listen. The first question to ask here is, well, you tell me. What's the first question to ask? You think about it. What was our first rule of reading? From a podcast, what was it? 2.3. That's right, we need to ask the question, what am I reading? Yes, and what is this? It's narrative. Yeah, it's a story. And more specifically, if you look this up in a commentary, you'd probably discover that it's called an enacted parable. What the heck is an enacted parable? Never heard of such a thing. Well, let's have a little chat about that. An enacted parable is a story with a point, much like a parable, except that it's not just a story that's told, it's a story that's enacted, it's dramatized before an audience. One of the best ways to think of enacted parables is to think of street theater, right? You might be walking along the street and you see someone just break into a monologue or a skit of some kind and it grabs your interest and you stop and you watch. And then as it goes on, you start to understand what's happening and maybe they explain it. Well, with enacted parables, the prophets in the Old Testament would perform a series of actions Which told a story. And then usually you read that the word of the Lord comes to the prophet after they've done the actions, which is a fancy way of saying that Yahweh tells the prophet what they've been doing, so that the prophet can tell the bemused onlookers what's actually going on. Now, if you're interested in this stuff, as I am, uh, take a look at Ezekiel chapters 4 and 5. There's some really weird and active parables going on there. But these are actually everywhere in the Old Testament, right throughout. Uh, And in fact, understanding them helps us to grasp a bit about what Jesus was doing uh, in the New Testament at various points, like when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and things like that. But you're going to have to sign up for a class to get those juicy details. So this is an enacted parable. And here's the sequence of events. All right. The command that God gives to Jeremiah about his linen shorts. I'm going to call them linen shorts because loin, the word loin just appeared more times in that passage uh, than I am comfortable with. So God gives Jeremiah a command to buy some linen shorts, and those linen shorts represent the law. It's a big do not. Do not let your shorts get wet. Sounds trivial, but it's representative of a greater reality. And then God tells Jeremiah to put the shorts in a rock, in a cleft in the rock by a river. The obvious inference there is that the shorts are going to get wet, which means that God's command is going to get broken. And then in the third action in this sequence, Jeremiah is told to go and get the shorts, which he does. And not surprisingly, the shorts are ruined. Good for nothing. Okay, well, that takes us through the first seven verses. And then we get the interpretation of this bit of street theater. And the punchline in the story is this. We, God's people, are his clothing. He gave the law for a purpose, but when we disobey, we distort that purpose. What is that purpose? Well, it couldn't be stated more clearly than in verse eleven. It says, "For as the loincloth clings to one's loins, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to Me," says the Lord, "in order that they might be for Me." That's the statement of purpose. In order that they might be for Me, a people, a name. Or reputation, a praise and a glory, but they wouldn't listen. There's so much in that verse. Why did God bind Israel and Judah to himself in a covenant relationship? Why did he elect this nation? For the sake of his name. In other words, for the sake of his reputation in the world. And here God laments that he wanted to wear Israel and Judah with pride, but because they have been disobedient, as it turns out, they've embarrassed him. And what's remarkable, I think, about this text is it's not done away with under the new covenant. It's, it's only intensified. Because in Jeremiah 13, God's people are God's clothing, right? In the parable, the linen shorts are God's, right? Or a linen belt, you could translate it. But in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, God's people are more than that. We're not Christ's clothing, we're Christ's body. So the reason that obedience is so important for God's people, whether Jewish or Christian, is that we are responsible for God's reputation in the world. Isn't that remarkable? I find that mind-blowing. We are responsible for God's reputation in the world. Let me just read you a paragraph from page 60 of of my book uh, on the prophets called Sharing God's Passion. The prophets longed to see God's people reflecting his likeness while the rest of the world looked on. Therefore, their confrontational ethic sought to establish not just obedience, but obedience as a means of speaking for God. The intended, intended purpose of Israel's obedience is expressed quite simply In Leviticus 19, verse 2, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Not because he says so or because it makes life easier on everyone, but because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The same directive applies to the church today. In light of our prophetic calling to make God known, obedience, being holy, fulfills God's passion by enhancing his reputation in the world so that others may also be drawn into a life-giving relationship with their maker. So the real problem with the Israelites so often in the Old Testament is that they are misrepresenting God. And it's very important that we understand this. Because as Christians, it's not our task to push commandments on other people. The point of Christian living is not just to be good and make sure that everyone around you is being good. The reason we're obedient is so that we look more like God. And as we show God's character, people are attracted to God through us, whether they're Christians or not. This has always been God's plan throughout the Old and New Testaments. You could say in just two words that the whole Christian life is about God's reputation The whole point of the law and of prophetic speech is not, you're doing the wrong thing. Would you please do the right thing? No, the underlying point is you're hurting God's reputation. God cares for the orphan and the widow. Why aren't your actions making that clear? God cares about justice and human dignity. Why don't your choices make that obvious? God is passionate about purity and order. Why can't I see that in your lifestyle? That's what the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament Are getting at. In Ezekiel's day, when Israel was scattered, God's promise through his prophet to gather Israel together again and get things back on track contains these awesome words. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. One of my favorite phrases in the Old Testament. It just puts everything so clearly. The nations will know that I'm the Lord when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. That's Ezekiel uh, 36, 23. So God makes himself visible in and to the world through who? Through us, through his people. Where the clothes he wears as he walks among the nations. Be holy because I'm holy, says God. I want people to know what I'm like, so show them. And this right here is the purpose of obedience. It's God's reputation at stake. It's not about moralism. It's not about telling everyone else whether their actions are black or white. The world's had enough of that kind of judgment in the name of the church, and it is not doing God any favors but love, but grace, but forgiveness, gentleness, respect, patience, a listening ear. Now those are some of the ways that we can behave like the body of Christ and keep an eye out for God's reputation in the world. All right, final question today is this. What positive part of God's character is revealed in your actions? Now, I'm not wanting you to get all negative about yourself and start thinking, I wish I was more like this or I wish I was more like that. I want you to think positive. What positive aspect of God's character is revealed in your life, in your actions? See you soon. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.